welcome to Upbringing, where Hannah and Kelty, twins, mothers, and works in progress. Upbringing is a movement that empowers us all to engage bravely with the hardest aspects of parenting, to create positive change in ourselves, our families, and the world. Join us to build intention, elevate skills, and align our parenting practices with our greatest ideals. When we practice trust over fear, connection over control, and progress over perfection, we're not just raising our kids, we're raising ourselves. Let's show up and grow up. Today's episode is supported by Artifact Uprising, a sister-owned company helping us honor the meaningful moments in our lives through printed photo gifts, books, and more. Their beautiful minimalist products are made from recycled papers, reclaimed materials, and all in the USA. Learn more about Artifact Uprising and support upbringing by visiting today's show notes or our partners page. Now onto our conversation. Darcy Lockman is a clinical psychologist who lives in Queens with her husband and two young daughters. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and her new book, All the Rage, Knocked Our Socks Off. In an era of seemingly unprecedented feminist activism, enlightenment, and change, data shows that one area of gender inequality stubbornly persists. Darcy explores how the disproportionate amount of parental work falls on women, no matter their background, class, or professional status. We love diving in with Darcy about the myth of maternal instinct, why we struggle with relationship expectations, the complications of gender socialization, and how we can best raise children of any gender to be thinking of others as well as themselves. Here we go. As I was reading it, lots of emotions going on. I cried with relief. I think the biggest feeling that I got from this was a sense of empowerment and validation that I was not making this shit up, that I was not alone in feeling all of these things along with you, Kelsey. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also just that permission to feel really mad and angry and a sense of injustice too. Yes, I hear you. I felt the same things as I was doing all the research and the writing. Because even I think when you know that you're not the only one, there's still a sense of, well, could this really be, you know, my partner doesn't seem to see it this way. Is this just me? So yeah, the research um, served to kind of like, I guess, validate my experience as you're saying. Well, except I took like, you know, maybe a week to read through this and you researched for three years, which like, that's a really long time to be angry. Oh, well, actually, (laughs) just to clarify, the research was about nine months. Okay. Okay. Uh, Half time job for nine months. So I spent, I mean, from like starting the proposal to like finishing the book was three years, but the anger was really at its peak before that. The anger, the peak of the anger is what led to the book in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, the early years of, I think kids' lives tend to, um, well, they're, they're, you know, amazing and also very hard. And the research shows that mothers with children under four report the greatest feelings of injustice. So I think my little one was three when I started writing the proposal. So yeah, the anger was about to get to its peak and then start to come down a little bit. Yeah, that sounds about right for us. Our mm-hmm. kids are, well, now they're both three, we have three-year-old boys and then five-year-old girls. Um, so that sounds about right for yeah. sure. Um, and you uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the book that you'd planned to interview, you know, like hundreds of mothers for all of this, but you stopped at 50 because they were basically saying the same thing. And what was it that, that, that you were hearing over and over again? Um, yes. Yeah, so in The Feminine Mystique, which I which is a great 
you know, historical feminist book. She interviewed a hundred mothers. So because I had read that in preparation for writing this, I thought, oh, I'll do that too. Mm. Betty Friedan as my uh, as my model. Um, but yeah, all the interviews after a while, you know, and I had a pretty wide net in terms of recruiting mothers across the country and from different socioeconomic statuses and different professional whatever. I mean, it was all women who worked outside the home, but everyone just had stories of like men who, who loved their kids and like hung out with them and um, were good dads, but who had no idea about kind of what it took to um, manage the house, um, who needed what, who needed to be where, when, what was upcoming in terms of needs. So, um, so again, good dads, but partners who, who weren't as good as they yeah. were as fathers, right? Because they're two different things, being a partner and being a father. That's so true. Yeah. Um, you wrote that the way we live hasn't caught up to our relatively new ideals. Yeah. And you kind of characterized it as a strange limbo where men's actions haven't totally caught up to women's expectations. Yeah. So my husband and I were in couples therapy before I started writing this book because um, we were having a lot of uh, a lot of struggles. And our, it was our couples therapist who said that to us, hmm. like a guy in his, uh, he was probably in his late 50s. And he said, you know, the way we live has not caught up to our relatively new ideals. And that really stuck with me because I thought, oh, yeah, that, that's it, right? That's it. Um, and you don't realize that until you're, you're living it. Um, and then it was actually um, Jill Filipovic, who's a journalist who who wrote the second thing that you said mm. uh, about right about about our ideals. So this this um, this knowledge is kind of out there, and until you're in it, you don't start hearing it. Totally. It sounds like your therapist was it Terrence Ray- Real? Terrence yeah. Real? <laughs> like we love no, him. No, yeah, I um, I used to work with Jancy Dunn a long time ago, and she wrote How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids. Right. Which, yeah. um, maybe a year before my book did. And she spends some time with Terrence Real. So I know who he is, but he was not my therapist. I've, I've read about her experience in therapy with him. But no. He's the first therapist we have heard about that really brings up the patriarchy in talking oh. about couples therapy. And it was just like, it was so amazing to hear because that's like what we're all feeling and all experiencing. And probably I would imagine since you're um, a psychotherapist that you know the reason that many couples go to therapy. Is division of labor one of those reasons? You know, it's really funny. I didn't know that he did that. I don't remember reading that in Jancy Dunn's book, although she might she might say that, but I think I would remember that. Um, I, I would say that it's not usually the thing that brings people to treatment, but whenever I'm seeing anyone with young kids, it comes up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that something that Kelty and I were talking about a lot with this kind of problem that has no name is the the fact that, you know, times have changed quite a bit. And you write about that in the book that, you know, dads have tripled the amount of time they spend with their kids since 1965. You know, like so many things have changed. The modern involved father exists. The culture around fatherhood has been changing, but but you you cite some statistics that say like actually the amount of work that they're doing hasn't changed that much in however many, what, 20 years or something like that, right? Yeah, the percentage, if you look at time use diaries, that's one way to figure out who's doing what percentage of the work. The amount of work done by fathers vis-a-vis children, and this is in dual career couples, peaked at 35% in at about the year 2000, and it's leveled off. So working mothers became um, kind of more the norm moving through the 80s and the 90s. 
And actually, the percentage of mothers in the labor force peaked in the mid-90s. So due to greater demands from earning women, um, fathers did up their input into the work of the home. But but yeah, it, it peaked in about the year 2000, and it's held steady ever since at 35%. And there are, you know, there are lots of metrics that back this up. It's not just like one study shows this. They pretty much all say the same thing. What constitutes the work of the home to you? Like what's the kind of the, that list of invisible things, invisible yeah. mostly to the, the dads? It's a good question. So when you look at the American Time Use Study, which is done by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they ask people living in homes to record how they spend their time and different activities throughout the day. So if you look at, there's actually a list that they um, put out that shows how much time everyone is spending in different tasks. So when I looked at that list, if you look at the American Time Use Study list, it's like grocery shopping, laundry, fruit, food preparation, helping with homework. Uh, I, I don't have the list in front of me, but it's like, if you look at the list, there are things that are childcare related and things that are clearly not like, um, I don't know. I don't remember. Personal hygiene maybe wouldn't be like a child rearing um, thing. So that would be one way to kind of list out what all those tasks are by looking at the study. But you guys know, as I know, Mm -hmm. that, you know, there's all that kind of mental load stuff. Um, Like I know that I need to get $9 exact exact change for the field trip slip that's due tomorrow. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that we are leaving for the weekend and that we don't have anyone to watch the dog yet. I know that the kids haven't gotten their flu shots yet and we have to go in. Um, I know that we're going to need a babysitter on November 23rd because we're supposed to be at a friend's house at 530 on a Saturday. Like all this stuff that's kind of constantly in your head about what's going to need to happen so that your children have the care that they need. And it Mm -hmm. never goes away. And there's a lot of research that shows and obviously anecdotal experience that this is mostly borne by mothers. Um, even when they are the sole breadwinners in the home, which was another interesting thing that I found. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, personally, Kelsey and I have gone through this. Um, I, I th- I'm thinking of it kind of historically because, you know, we started as um, doing the primary, all the primary housework um, in our families. And then we had kids and we stayed home the first two years with each child. So we were the kind of the stay-at-home primary caregivers. And then we slowly this last year with upbringing moved into four days a week work where we're now we're out. And the disparity or not the dis- the disparity of work and and the, the unequalness of it has become really, really clear to us. And so we've kind of gotten a sample of all of the kind of at least a small scope of what people go through. And I mean, like you said, the parental consciousness thing, the mental load thing is really freaking real. It's crazy. Yeah. It's so much. I, I mean, unless I'm at work, I'm, I've got all that stuff on my mind. And I think that was one of the things that really started to get to me in my own marriage was realizing how differently we were living with being parents. And mm-hmm. I feel like the, you know, we were, the penultimate example of this, we were at a birthday party and it must've been, I think it must've been like five years ago. It was before I wrote the book and spring break was upon us. And it was actually, yeah, our older daughter was in kindergarten. So it was our first year of not having preschool, which is, you know, 52 weeks a year. Um, And we were in public school all of a sudden. And of course school was going to close for spring break. And I was like, Oh my God, what am I supposed to do with my kid? 
during spring break. Um, and I spent like a few weeks kind of frantically trying to figure out what was what we were going to do with her because we had to be at work. Um, and so we're at this birthday party, which is the Sunday before spring break. And my husband and I are talking to another mother. And she says to me, Oh, what are, what are you doing with your daughter for spring break? And my husband looks at me and he says, Oh, is this week's spring break? And oh my God. <laughs> it was just like this moment of this is it. This is exactly it. Right. Like I, and of course I hadn't said to him, we need to do this, but he had never said to me, hey, we need to do this. It was just like, I'm doing this, you know, cause, and this is, you know, this is like the universal story, right? This is the mental load. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's living with and without the mental load that is, that makes such, I don't know that that's the big, that's been the big thing for me. And I think it, it is for a lot of women too. Cause like you can, you know, you can kind of share tasks more easily. Like, Hey, um, you need to pick up paper towel on your way home. It's easy. Right. If you're the one who's of course tracking that there's no more paper towel. That doesn't um, feel easy to me sometimes, Darcy, yeah, <laughs> even that or pick up the whatever else, like right. distribution that you just stepped over and pick that up. No, I, you're right. The distribution of tests is not at all easy, but it's even that is easier than, Oh my God, you don't even know that it's spring break. Like how, how are you so, how are we living in the same home, taking care of the same children? And right. You, you mm-hmm. just don't register this stuff. One person does and one person doesn't. And it's so gendered, you know, if it happened to be men, some of the time who are registering this, you could chalk it up to personality. Um, but it, it never, like it, it almost never is. Yeah. I, I can't say never. Well, and, and that's why you wrote this book, right? Because to understand the why behind this. And Kelty and I talk about that so much. We're like, why are we, you know, as we've become mothers, why are we the primary caregiver for this? Why is it our job to do this? Um, you know, we're twins. So in our minds, and we grew up in a very kind of egalitarian cooperative household, we're female also. So we were raised in a way to think about the greater good, th- being on a team, uh, parity, equality. And then we, we come into these relationships with these lovely, wonderful men that we love a lot, who were not raised in homes like that, who were raised as male, yeah. You know, who, uh, and it's just, we've just been asking ourselves and, and you really elucidate so beautifully in the book, these different ideas of why um, this could be happening. You know, for example, breastfeeding and maternity leave kind of set a precedent as, you know, for having women as the primary caregiver and that can really undermine from the get go. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, these skills are learned and not yeah. made. That was one of the interesting things in doing the research was really coming to understand that there's no such thing as a maternal instinct, even though we talk mm-hmm. about it as if it were a biological given. But mm-hmm. but in reality, parenting skills are learned and not innate for primates and for males and females both. So if you're the one doing all the learning in the early days of parenting, in the early months of parenting, which is so often the case because um, especially in this country, men don't take paternity leave, probably not. Right. Um, so if you're the one who does all the learning, you then become the one who things becomes easier for. Uh, and it's so easy after that for it to default to you. And actually, there are studies now in countries where there, where um, paternal leave is now more of a regular thing, the Scandinavian countries. And those studies show that men who take solo paternity leaves, meaning they're home with the baby without their wives when their wives are back at work, they continue to contribute like two additional hours per week more than other men who didn't take paternity leave like five years later. So long after mm-hmm. paternity leave has ended. And, so it makes a that, difference. That's that like cascades and all these other beneficial ways in the relationship too, right? Yeah. There's so much relationship research about um, kind of like relationship quality and happiness going down and further with, with each successive kid. And 
that the um, the effects of that are mitigated by shared labor. So the only couples that don't report a decrease in happiness at like the six month mark of their baby's lives are the ones in which fathers are contributing at least a third. And you know that that's low, right? But that that is right. about norm is a third. But those are the only couples who who um who say that the relationship is like the same or better than it was before. So yeah, yeah. Um, the, the amount of work that fathers contribute to their children's um, care has a measurable impact on relationships. Yeah, well, and I want to get back to the naturalistic fallacy, which I think is so common. And I think it's something we tell ourselves as women. It's something our husbands tell us. It's something our in-laws tell us. Oh, it's better. You know, you're you're so good at this because you're a woman. Or oh, let's excuse him for not doing this because he's a guy. It's just biological, right? Yeah, that's what my mother said to me. You know, when I started. I think it's a generational thing. When I started researching this book, I would ask people, you know, why do you think this is? Just to hear what people had to say. And basically, there were three categories of answer. One was like my mother, and I think tended to come from older women, though I heard it from my peers as well, which is, oh, it's just biological. Um, That was Mm -hmm. the first thing I heard. Another thing I would hear is, oh, mothers are so controlling, which makes me seethe. Um, and the, yeah. well, the third thing I heard, of course, was patriarchy. And that's kind of where um, I land with like most of this. But yeah, I mean, I, I didn't realize, and you guys can tell me if you knew this before you read the book, that men's hormones change when their wives are pregnant. So spending time in intimate contact with a pregnant female has a neurobiological impact on men. Wow. wow. So which is crazy, right? So, but what um, what anthropologists say, and Sarah Hardy in particular, who's like who writes a lot about um, primates and motherhood, says that like this really implies that evolutionarily there's like a really um, old mechanism for paternal involvement because um, okay. men, men are just as inclined as women because of these hormonal changes to bond with and be inclined to care for the baby. Well, yeah, and you mentioned the fMRI studies that talk about amygdala activation, where there's equal or the same type of amygdala ac- activation in stay-at-home parents, regardless of their gender. You know, our brains, as you said, get good at whatever we're faced with doing. They're they're neuroplastic, right? Yeah, right, absolutely. So they they couldn't really see differences in the. Um, brain activity of primary care parents. So they looked at men and they looked at women and the men who were secondary care parents, whose wives were doing most of the childcare work, looked a little bit different in the fMRIs. But if you looked at men who were primary care parents, and in this study, they were looking at gay men who had, who had adopted, so there were no women around taking care of the babies, um, but their brain activity looked almost identical to that of primary care mothers. And the conclusion that they drew was it's more about interaction with the baby than gender in terms of um, neurobiology. Yeah, but well, the, no one ever talks about a paternal instinct, and the just the phrase maternal instinct is so tricky because mm-hmm. I feel like it's just loaded with this pressure, um, yeah. for women to be to know everything and be able to do everything right. It's it's phrased so often as a compliment, well, and but- it gives guys uh, off the hook. Well, it's it's something innate and inborn, so I don't have it. So default, yeah. she's going to be the primary. And I feel like it ties yeah. into what we talk about so much in the whole parenting realm, which is this fear to learn more and to mm-hmm. acknowledge that you don't know everything. Yeah. And I mean, even your your father-in-law, yeah. Hannah, when you, we started reading and reading and reading all these parenting books, he said flat to Hannah's face that I'm re- 
reading because I don't have, I must not have the maternal instinct. Oh my and that's God. why I'm doing reading. Wow. And he's, you know, he's an old school in his seventies Chilean man. Wow. And I really had to, I had to do some real work not to take that one personally. Oh wow. God. Wow. Um, okay. But I mean, it's like, it's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Like, I just, mm-hmm. I love that you just busted that myth and you're like, no. Um, and I love that you busted the empathy myth too, that, oh, women are just naturally more empathetic. My daughters are just naturally more empathetic than my sons are. It's like, no, research shows that people perform the same on empathy tests when the word empathy isn't used, right? Because men associate that as a female trait. Yeah. Or, That's so or crazy. You pay people. So if you, okay. if you if you give cash prizes for doing well in the experiment, um, men will do just as well on tests of empathy as women. Oh my gosh! So, so we really, should be paying our husbands to do stuff around the house. Be empathetic to us. <laughs> There's an app for that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh my gosh! So the big the big whys going on here. You mentioned gender socialization starts at birth, right? Yeah. Sure. Unpack that a little bit for us. Um, yeah. So there are infant studies that are that are observational, and I love academia. Such interesting research is done. Like I feel like they're so they're very clever. Um, so they'll look at how parents interact with their babies and kind of count how many times everything happens. And this is like videos, you know, in the home. I don't know how they're how this is done exactly. Hidden cameras in the not hidden, but in the bedrooms, and they count like so. What they see is that boys are jostled and like thrown about and played with a little more roughly from the time they're very small, and girls receive more grooming, caretaking touch. So this is just one thing, but if we think about like even in egalitarian homes, this stuff is so unconscious. Right? right, we respond differently to boys and girls based on what we believe about their gender. Um, so, you know, people who say, "Well, look, boys play so differently than girls. If you go to the playground, they're much rougher. Um, must be testosterone." And I certainly can't say that that is completely untrue. Though there's a great book by Cordelia Fine that you guys would probably love called "Testosterone Rex." Um, and she's a neuroscientist, and she debunks a lot of myths about um, the impact of testosterone in the body, because so much of it is based on like assumptions, um, sort of like, well, boys do this, therefore it must be testosterone. But if you think about the fact that um, if baby boys have their bodies jostled more, playing in a rougher way may feel more um, soothing and more comfortable by the time they're five, whereas who are groomed more um, and given gentle touch more might feel more comfortable with like more gentle play. Mm -hmm. So socialization and biology are, are like, they're kind of intertwined. You can't really break them apart to say what is what, but we make so many assumptions about gender based on the way five-year-olds act. And they're not realizing so much socialization by the time that they're five, that they're hardly blank slates. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So even if you look at the the play styles of girls and boys, there are interesting classroom studies where they actually show that and I, I don't have the book in front of me and I don't want to get this wrong, but it's something like this. In classrooms of um one to two year olds, boys and girls are equally as likely to shove and bite and push and grab toys. But the boys are um uh scolded more for that behavior. So they again they have um one way mirrors for like the um, the researchers to be behind to watch what goes on in the classroom and they count how many times all these interactions happen. 
boys are like twice as likely to be scolded for rough play as girls. Now you would think, well, scolding, that's bad. But what do kids crave? Adult attention. So Mm -hmm. you're kind of like reinforced, if you want to think of it in that way. And this is like learning theory terms. They're reinforced for that behavior twice as often as girls. So by the time you go to the next year, kids, two to three-year-old classrooms, um, boys have become more likely to engage in these behaviors and girls less likely to. And by the way, girls are reinforced more for like babbling and singing and chatting kind of girl type or behavior. Or to be careful on everything they climb on. Right, exactly. That kind of thing. Yeah. So we can't ever really attribute anything to like biological difference because the socialization starts so early and is so prominent. You know, something that I read said, you know, we break girls and boys up by gender in school from the time they're so little, like boys on one side of the class, girls on the other, two lines, one girls, one boys, you know, one of the classrooms where we broke kids up by whether they were left or right-handed. And we made a huge mm-hmm. deal of that all of the time. But you would come to see big difference, like, oh, we'd, we'd be, oh, well, left-handers and right-handers, you know, they're just really different, right? It's just like the emphasis that is put on it um, highlights for kids that their gender is something that is super important and defining. But we can do it so accidentally. One of our friends recently um, was sharing a fear with us. She's got two girls and two boys. And the the oldest girl is, she portrays her as such a helper and such a giver and as such a nurturer. Just Mm -hmm. innately, she's always been like this. And the the boys don't really want to help much. And and she's struggling with this idea all of a sudden that that her daughter is seeing she and her daughter doing all of the cleanup and all of the work in their household. And she doesn't want to be setting her up for relationships where she assumes that that's a a necessary dynamic, but it's a really tricky thing to tease apart because she is a stay at home mom. She does do all of those things and having an older daughter who has been her helper from the beginning, like maybe she's without realizing it sort of set up some of those habits and those situations and those opportunities and, you know, it's just so tricky. Yeah. I mean, girls are raised to be helpers in a way, right? Because right. the assumptions that we make. So in the language of sociology, girls are really raised to be and are reinforced for being communal, for thinking about others and helping. And boys are more uh, assumed to be and reinforced for being agentic. That's the word they use, meaning thinking about their own goals and priorities and going after those things. So when you have a subset of people raised to be communal, and another subset of people raised and reinforced for being agentic, what's going to happen when one person from each subset marries the other, right? Right. We're set up yeah. for failure. <laughs> well, right. We're set up to, right, we, this is what we've learned to be. And this is what's been, what we see we can be appreciated for in our culture, you know, men for their um, ambition and drive and, um, uh, I don't know, assertiveness and, and women for being kind and caring. Yeah, I, 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 that was one of good, but we don't like those tendencies don't have the same potential for flourishing in both genders given the social pressures. Right. And I don't think that they necessarily come up that starkly until kids enter the picture. I mean, I didn't really think about that that often until I had kids, but that's one of the things that brought my husband and me to therapy where I called it the every man for himself complex where he was growing up and had grown up. And luckily we were able to unpack a lot of our family of origin stuff so that we could understand one another and where we're coming from and why um, our match is actually so problematic in that way. Me being coming from a communal home, him coming from a every man for himself, agentic, yeah, home, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and how, like, how do we make that work? 
You know, how does this play out when I have expectations and beliefs that go completely counter to the way he's been living it and moving through the world his whole life? Yeah, I know, right? I, I hear you. Um, yes, it, it was all my, you know, my husband's great. I love him very much. He's a great father, but I am all so often since we become parents, just amazed by his ability to think about himself and prioritize himself. And the only reason I feel comfortable saying that is I see it, you know, once I started looking at it and researching it and talking to people like this is not, he is not a rarity there. And it's such a different way of being in the world. It's, it's hard for me to relate to. And so it makes Mm -hmm. me angry. And I I don't want to say that that's always bad because I think I definitely saw that I, and see that I don't do that enough and then wind up feeling angry and, um, and burned out. So, you know, there's something about that being so split between men and women, the ability to prioritize one's own needs and the inability to ever stop thinking about everything else that everyone is going to need. Yeah. I'm like, I'm so inspired, honey, by your self-care routine. That is awesome. But I remember at the point when he pointed out once, he said, Han, why do you always ask if you can take a shower? And I had never even realized that I always asked when we had two babies, you know, in the house, like I'd be like, can I take a shower real quick? And he'd be like, why are you asking me? And I was like, because we're a team and one person leaving for 20 minutes, like I, because I'm trying to respect the fact that we're doing this co-parenting thing together, co-parenting. But he never asked, he would just go take a shower, you know? That was one of my first things being like, oh, holy shit. Right. But also like, why aren't you asking me? Or at least, you know. Like, is this a good time? Like, I, I need to do this. Is this a good time for this? Right. Yeah, or I'd be waiting with a baby somewhere and he'd be like, oh, okay, I just had to meditate really quick before I came over and shower or something. And I'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? Know, like, right. I'm so happy, honey, that you're taking care of yourself. But what about me? <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. But it reminds me, one of my friends the other day was actually complaining. He He's a stay-at-home dad and he was talking about self-care and alone time um, to kind of like separating with his wife about that. And he's like, and when I have my alone time, I want to do something rejuvenating, like go for a run or play video games. And she just wants to clean. She <laughs> just wants to clean or do a project. And he's saying it like, what is wrong with her? Uh-huh. And I was just like, what is wrong with this conversation? <laughs> like, oh it's like blaming the victim kind yeah. of situation. <laughs> I talked to a guy, I spoke with um, the husbands of the women who I interviewed too, for the book as often as I could. And one of the men said to me, you know, it's just my wife's personality. She just needs to be busy all the time. Oh my God. (laughs) Busy, busy, busy. Oh my God. This must be biological. Um, I don't know. I think that Kelty and I have gotten to the point where we're aware of the situation that we're in. We are trying to, we've asked ourselves why this is happening. And we go through this kind of cycle. I don't know if this cycle is kind of familiar it's to like you. like a dab loop, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tell me. But what's the what's the cycle, Kel? The cycle is saying, saying what we need, saying what we need over and over again, then strategizing for the person of how to get that need met by um, putting something closer to the door or making a list or doing those things kind of like innovating. Um, and then we start getting testy. Then we start getting snippy and mad. Then we start getting really angry. Then we have a big explosion where they apologize. We, well, they or, they they first. or they get defensive yeah. first. Then they end up apologizing. They say they're going to try to work on it more. We hug it out. It's great. We end up deciding, okay, here are all the reasons we're grateful. 
look at some of, of our friends, partners, there's way worse. And well, we really do like doing this stuff. And at least we have each other and we can help each other, which is so great <laughs> and, and seen. And then it happens again, like over and over and over again. Yeah. So one of the um, psychologists who I interviewed, a so- social psychologist named Francine Deutsch, she talks about the cycle that you guys are mentioning. And she says, you know, everything's fine and then it's not fine and you start getting frustrated and then maybe you have a fight and he apologizes and says it's going to be better. You know, you have a blow up and then for like a day he does the stuff and then it goes back to normal. So she said what she saw in the families that she interviewed was that's not what equality looks like. Um, That never becomes equality. It's just Mm -hmm. kind of the same thing over and over again. So um, what she talks about and what the most successful couples I interviewed talked about was paying really sustained attention to the division of labor. It wasn't something that only came up when there was a fight, but rather um, it was a part of like a weekly discussion about how everyone was doing and what needed to happen. So I was really surprised by the amount of like work it takes to actually have a home in which both people feel satisfied with what's going on with the distribution of labor. I mean, it really could be its own part-time job. And in fact, one couple, the couple that made the biggest impression on me um, was in another book, which is called Equally Shared Parenting by Mark and Amy Vachon. It came out about 10 years ago. And they made it their mission to interview equally sharing couples. They call it equally shared parenting and like devoted a big portion of their early parenting years to it and then interviewed other people who were doing the same. And this one couple said, you know, we didn't want any of the material stuff. We didn't care about career success. We mostly just wanted to be equals. And they made that like their main goal. Um, And I thought, oh my God, is that what it takes? That's crazy. And then the more... I got into my research and the more I did, I was like, yep, that kind of is what it takes to really counterbalance the gender socialization and the internalized sexism. Can it begin with just an acknowledgement that we aren't equals yet? Like that would mean a whole lot to me. Yes. I, <laughs> you no, know, I actually think it has to begin there because until it is identified as a problem, there's no solving it. It's sort of like AA, right? The first thing you have to do is admit you have a problem. So, and I think that's where this starts because I went into parenting, as did my husband, just assuming we were going to share all the work. It wasn't even a question. Of course, we had no idea what that work was going to be because you don't know before you have kids what that's going to be. You kind of don't know till you're in it. But part of the reason, you know, I wrote the book was like to um, bust the myth, right? The idea that, oh, we've arrived, everything's good. Because when you go into it with that misconception, you're not going to be in a good position to avoid what's likely to happen. You know, what all the research shows is the most likely thing to happen. I just, I think it's such a big thing, though, that idea that prioritizing the family and the relationship is not valued in our culture. When you have kids, you think, well, I need to prioritize the work to make money to support all these kids and to have a bigger home and to have more things. And I think that that's the problem that Kelsey and I come up against with all of these things is is not the fact that it's necessarily unequal, but the fact that our relationship isn't based on a mutual awareness of that fact necessarily. And that's the part that irks us the most is that we haven't gotten to the point where we can can fully acknowledge with our partners and they can say, as you write in your book, I am sexist, you know, like yeah. 
how how do we move to that place with our partners? Like I'm hoping when they read this book, if they read this book, they could maybe move towards saying something, basically acknowledging their own entitlement. It's their unconscious entitlement as men. Yes. Right? Yeah, I think that's so important. And one of the really encouraging things I've heard from couples who've read this together is that the book really allowed them to admit that without feeling um, guilty or responsible in a way. Like people have said to me, this really absolved us both of responsibility in a way that let us come to the discussion in a different way, not from a place of anger or guilt or self-recrimination, but just from like, oh, of course it's going this way. This is how we were raised without even really realizing it because we grew up in a patriarchy. And this is a social problem. It's not an us problem. And we can take it on as a team to make it not be this way if this is not what we want. So, so yeah, um, absolutely. You have to kind of like agree that this is something that you don't want if, if indeed it is something that you don't want, and then you can work as a team to make sure that it doesn't happen. I love that. So it's about getting aware and then getting organized. I, that's a really nice way to put it. Yeah. Okay. And then raising kids that see and feel and help and are perpetuating this crazy cycle. Right. I think that's true. Though I am, I feel like we're up against so much there just because, mm-hmm. you know, the larger world is, is a patriarchy. So even in our homes, if things are equal, and I know I was raised in a home with a father who did, especially for that era, quite a lot. His job was pretty flexible. My mom's was less. Um, and he was like the dad who was always around. And that was very unusual. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Um, and yet, right, and my, my husband was raised by a single mother. Um, so I guess he did see a woman doing all the work. But anyway, I, I just, I, I do feel as if the water around us tells us that men are more important, right? And this is in the book, like I had a moment when my daughter, my youngest was in preschool, they were learning math, and they were using money. And she was asking me to identify the people on all the coins. And as I'm identifying them, I'm like, Oh, my God, they're all men. Mm-hmm. Um, which of course I knew, but I had never seen that through her eyes before. And even though it wasn't something she was reacting to or thinking about consciously, like the messages like that are out there all the time, right? Who is more important? Who is more powerful? Whose needs take precedence? So I think the home is a great place to start in instilling other values, but it's it's like a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. But even just using our partnerships as a model that yeah. our kids can be seeing that is hopefully more equitable yes. and more aware and collaborative. Yeah. And I'm such a depressive in that way. But I feel like <laughs> there, is, like, there is kind of research that's more optimistic. I came across a study that showed that boys raised in egalitarian homes with little siblings show just as much interest in babies as girls. But if you look at more traditional homes, they show less interest in babies than little girls. And the the thought among the researchers is that um, they're kind of identifying with their fathers who are a little more distanced from infant and baby care, and then not taking as much interest. So there is that too, right? And I mean, it's a big step even providing babies and dishes and foods and things for bo- little boys to play with. Oh, yeah. yeah. We devalue the feminine so readily. Yeah. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the interesting researchers I spoke with talked about how, um, you know, there's been this big push, which we all celebrate for girls in the sciences, right, with STEM. Um, there has not been an equal 
and um, emphatic push towards boys being in healthcare and child development and, and education. Mm-hmm. So this researcher, um, I think her name is Tony Schmader, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. She um, is pushing the idea of HEED, healthcare, early education and development, I think it's, it is, cool. which is like a STEM equivalent, but for boys. Like we are always pushing girls to be more traditionally masculine in this era of like um, kind of woke feminism this has been going on for a while. Maybe woke feminism yeah. is the wrong word, but we're, we've not real. We have not pushed boys in the other direction. Like, oh, be caring, play with dolls. You can play with dolls too, right? Girls, girls, you can play soccer. Is not met with boys. You can play with kitchens and dolls. So, um, right, because we're so we so automatically devalue feminine stuff. You know, traditionally feminine stuff. Mm-hmm. Well. This is just so much and has been so wonderful just hearing all of this. But if you could leave our listeners with just one idea or thought to start the conversation with their partners, I think a lot of us can feel really over overwhelmed sometimes and have had so many, you know, the vicious cycle of all of this. We've conditioned our partners to pull back about it or to lash out about it or to run away, you know, and how can we reapproach this? Do you have any ideas, just an idea to send people off with? Well, I think that you need to come at it at a time when you're um, not feeling too angry and to really be able to say to your partner, I'm really unhappy about something in our relationship and I need you to hear me. Um, and I'm not blaming you and I need you to not be defensive and, and to try to see this from my perspective. Because, you know, what I heard from women who hadn't been effective at getting through to their husbands was that they were often met with defensiveness. Well, I do a lot. Well, I do more than other men, um, et cetera, et cetera. And to really say, like, I need you to kind of try to see this. I really need you to see this from my perspective, because when you don't, I feel so invalidated and I'm already feeling so overburdened and alone. I really need you to hear me. So I think if you can kind of take an approach that, you know, even though you may be angry, is just like like a try to see this my way just for a few minutes entertain that this might be this might be going on if i feel this and i really need you to hear me i think that um is a place hopefully where you know someone can um engage in conversation right even if they if they don't fundamentally agree or think that their partner is right okay i can try i can try to hear you i can try to see where you're coming from but beyond that i would suggest um following them around the house reading passages of this book aloud (laughs) (laughs) that was amazing that was empowering yeah and a little overwhelming i think i might have been (laughs) clenching my teeth during some of it definitely i was clenching my fist during most of it (laughs) um okay takeaways well immediately her reflections at the very end of the episode here um were amazing but i can imagine my highest self being able to do that both with my kid and my husband, to Mm. choose a time when I'm calm, to just say, hey, I need you to hear me out. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm noticing. Can we try this? That really is like the most amazing, mature way. And we needed a clinical psychologist to tell us that. I think I realize that and I'm always putting it off. I'm not making the time. I'm not scheduling. And then it ends up coming out and like, or I realize it and just realizing it that I have to be the one to calmly approach the situation also. makes me mad again. And it's just impossible. Why do I have to initiate it's, this fucking it's conversation? A of, it's a bit of a catch 22 if you ask me, Kel. Seriously. Yeah. Well, I feel like we talked so much about getting aware and getting organized. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. I think that um, 
I mean, we talked a little bit about our backstory, and I'm always so <clears throat> curious to hear listeners' backstories mm-hmm. about this mm-hmm. because everyone's experience with this is so different. And I think the amazing thing about Darcy's book, which had so much incredible information that I really wanted to just jam into the interview and couldn't, and now I want to jam it into the after show and Kelty's not letting me. I really just yeah. implore you to read the book and get all of these things. It's just there's so much that we just couldn't even touch it's on. It's such a cool exploration like, and deep dive, and yeah. there's so much research. This, this is not one of those like, well, you've heard the podcast research. interview, so you don't have to read the book now. Like, this was just one tiny little gem of what she provides. So please go go do that. But mm-hmm. you and I talked, Kel, a little bit about our upbringings um, and how, you know, we started with, you know, how we've come to experience this issue. And I just wanted to say again that her book was mainly about heterosexual couples, cisgender couples, I believe, too, and for dual earners. And so, I mean, this book isn't even talking about the, the situation with stay-at-home parents and how difficult that is. This is with people who are supposedly um, working the same amount of hours in an outside job and then coming home and parenting and doing housework and all of that. So just wanted to establish that for mm-hmm. anybody who's curious and thinking about, hey, well, what about me? How do I you know, reflect on all of this stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. I think you're going to talk about how we we came into this feeling of injustice in a way mm-hmm. as we began working and our time was divided differently and our child care hours burn. Were, yeah, our child mm-hmm. care hours became different and um, and then it was just forced us to reflect. Oh, I guess we really did do most of the cleaning and housework even before we had kids. Where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess we did sort of have a, a love of cleaning. Oh, I guess and we a did love of caring for of, other people. Right. I guess we did have a love of um, or we did kind of look at a clean space or a clean body as a form of self-care mm-hmm. and trying to just kind of like <clears throat> suss out those things like so if I'm not cleaning and my space isn't clean then I don't feel mentally stable like I remember having to clean my my dorm room at college before I could sit down and write a paper mm-hmm. because that's just how I felt regulated Ooh, and yeah. prepared her book was just so validating to me it really was and yeah. I think that it's gonna hopefully encourage you to think about and get a little bit closer and maybe a little uncomfortable around all of the the rationalizations that that occur to you to maintain this kind of this system of inequality or the things that your partner said to you that you actually kind of start to believe are true. Like I, I have had so many realizations where I'm like, well, I thought it was a twin thing. That's what explained it. I thought, well, I'm just a woman and women naturally notice these things more. I'm just, you better know, at it. I'm just better at it. So I might as well do it. It's uh, going to take too much time to teach him properly. It's too hard on our relationship, keeping track Hannah, of this. This is They're a perfect all, segue know? into how we handle this with parents parenting because I feel yeah. like we all have those same things oh my god mm. them them tr- uh, our kids trying to fold laundry bigger mess nope I'm just gonna do it myself in mm-hmm. my spare time tonight with a show mm-hmm. you know oh them taking their dish to the counter that's a bad idea because I basically have to just trail through with a towel right after because they can't do it yet mm-hmm. you know but it mean, makes me feel like our husbands are like our kids in that way where we're having to deal with all of these things and raise them to love cleaning and to participate equally and we're also trying to do that with our kids it's a lot of people we're dealing with here it, it's a big juggling act <laughs> yeah. and that's what I want to talk about in this brief after show is okay. what are we going to do to break the cycle how are we going to be looking at our parenting in this way to consider gender socialization to consider 
consider um, kindness, to consider inner authority and mm-hmm. inner wisdom mm-hmm. um, and a sense of agency. What do we do? Mm-hmm. What's our plan? Well, what have we been trying well, to do? Just to set the scene for this, mm-hmm. um, Darcy quotes Kate Mann's book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, mm-hmm. by talking about how people are broken into these two groups, typically male and female, as a human being versus a human doing. And this idea about what we want to do is that we want to find a way to 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 raise kids that are human beings and human doers, you know, yeah. who can do and be, and not just be relegated to being, which is usually males get to just be. They have a, they're agentic, they have agency in their lives, and women just do 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 and take care communally of everybody else and all the 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 beers. Basically. Justin would want me to make a do do joke, but. a do do. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the idea is tr- saying, can we raise? raise kids to be both of those things and then can we ourselves i think it starts with us first we are all doers primarily can we start being more Mm -hmm. and what does that require what does that ask of us what does that ask of our partners i I kind of ask our partners at some point to also become more of a doer and less of a beer to balance that that out sometimes i have this feeling when i'm sitting with my kids at dinner and I'm like I feel like my husband is just sitting there he's eating he's 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 so he's, mindful he's so mindful he's sitting there just talking with the kids and I end up like feeling this building sense of resentment that I'm seeing that the dog just walked in with his paws um, grabbing the food that fell on the ground um, being two steps ahead for um, putting out the the light Mm -hmm. for bath time and the clothes for this and the whatever for that and I'm like why am I running myself ragged why isn't he doing anything and at the end of the day often I think to myself I wish I could be more like him and just just, be with my kids just Mm -hmm. be present and be in the moment Mm -hmm. but I also wish that he could open his vision a little bit and see some of this it's like the times that he does Mm -hmm. pop up to do whatever and I'm not saying that he's just like sitting on his butt no. all the time Mm-mm. but with the times he does say oh I'll run and prep the bath real quick or do whatever it's just such a relief on my shoulders because mm-hmm. it makes me realize I've had like 20 things in my brain right now and I would like to just switch it off and just be present for a little bit and when we can mm-hmm. balance that load we we all do better we all feel better we all have more sex absolutely yep. more sex all around um so getting aware and getting organized with the two things we discussed with Darcy, right? Mm-hmm. Getting aware, I think, is getting that clarity of our boundaries, getting clear on what oh, we're yeah. willing to do and what we're willing to not do, what mm-hmm. feels unfair to us, what we need help with, and what we're happy to do so that we can feel a little more alignment in how we move through the world. Mm-hmm. You know? I think that that comes up so much in our parenting, at least mm-hmm. it does for me, Han, because I find the times that I'm just sort of spazzing out and grasping <laughs> at straws and just being like, no, stop, this has to stop. Or being really angry at our partners. Right, right. Means it is because I haven't thought about this beforehand at all to plan for what I'm comfortable with. For example, like if you go to your in-law's house and you're just like, what's gonna happen? I might be frustrated with how they're handling things as opposed to going with a plan to be like okay I'm gonna see this coming when this type of thing comes or if I'm blind I'm not gonna be blindsided by this type of thing here's how I'm gonna handle it here's Mm -hmm. how I'm gonna advocate for myself here's how I'm gonna lay down my boundary calmly lovingly you know Mm -hmm. but it all comes from you know all outer conflict we believe comes from a lack of clarity from within Mm -hmm. that we need to get clear within when all of our problems come basically from a lack of attunement an inner wisdom you and i call it that creates a lack of boundaries which is an inner authority which leads to conflict because it's gray it's messy if we don't know who we are and what we want then how are we able to move through the world and and you know 
make change well, and know what's what. I think that that's, you know? that's the kind of thing that happens when I just realize I'm reacting to everything. Mm-hmm. And I and I need to make time to just be like, that was terrifying. <laughs> what, what, what can I do next time to mm-hmm. see this coming, to mm-hmm. organize around it, to whatever? But I think that it's all about boundaries. When my boundaries are clear, when I have established with my partner that they do dishes after dinner completely, when I establish with my kid that they can play with me, but they can't jump on my head, I feel secure and clear, and I can uphold those boundaries more lovingly, and they can respect those boundaries better as mm-hmm. well, right? Yeah. I can ask for what I need. I can hold fast to my beliefs, and I can also give without resentment or guilt or doubt or helplessness. Mm-hmm. But again, it all comes from within, and that's what we're, we're trying to create in our kids is an inner awareness Right. Yeah, but that's something we struggle so much with as parents because we feel at times that we're constantly cueing them. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like, hey, pick up this. Hey, do this. Hey, remember this. And yes, often with our partners as well. But yeah. what's the problem with cueing, or what's the problem with our kids needing to be cued? Well, I think it's a natural uh, idea is saying if they if they don't know to do it, then they won't do it. But the problem with cueing them in the moment to be doing those things, it creates kind of a Pavlovian response Mm -hmm. where they begin to rely on the cue to do the behavior. And so what we talk about a lot is how we need to be working to give them that information and create agreements outside of the moment and then allow them to the responsibility and the agency and the um, what's the word that I always forget? I think it starts with an A. it's like responsibility. But anyway. Oh, accountability. Um, accountability. Thank mm-hmm. you. You're welcome. To do it themselves. And then when they don't, we're able to follow up in the moment or later lovingly about it. But the problem with cueing them is beyond that they rely on that cue is that they're not understanding the why. They're not having that re- accountability and responsibility. And then they're growing up to basically look around to constantly be cued for what's needed and why. Mm-hmm. You know, it basically... Uh, raises them to have a lack of outer and inner awareness. And that's the opposite of what we want to be doing with our Basically. kids, right? And, yeah. you know, uh, the library books is a great example. My husband, who does not have a, a high accountability and level of responsibility in our home when it comes to domestic things, he was not raised to have that awareness, the inner awareness of his accountability or the outer awareness of what needs to happen, right? I, I would ask him to return the library books, which are the libraries right by his work. And like he would in the con- same parking lot. <laughs> he would continue to forget them over and over and over again. And so, of course, I would innovate, you know, and I'd be like, well, maybe I'll move them um, in his box where he has his keys and he'd forget there. Okay, maybe I'll put them on the kitchen table with a little sign, forget them there. And then I was like, well, maybe I should just put them in the car. And I was like, whoa, Han, stop. And I went to him and I said, you know, you're having some trouble returning the library books and I'm wondering what you need. Like maybe you need to brainstorm so that you can be held accountable about this because you don't do this at work. Do you think you know someone has to remind you to be doing these things and setting you up for success all the way along? If you signed up to do the library books and you said yes, then fucking get it done. And he, his response was, well, you could remind me just as I'm walking out the door. <laughs> And I was just like, oh my God, this is, this is it. This is a perfect example, you know? And mm-hmm. again, he, he is a very responsible person in so many aspects of his life and in his work, but the awareness, the, the accountability, it is just not there. Mm-hmm. So you, I think you'd be happy if we made this whole episode about you and Alex. You were going to bring him on the after yeah, show to talk. Yeah, he was going to come on, but you know, he didn't read the book. Yeah. So I'm sorry. 
You can't out. come on the after show if you don't read the book. <laughs> I love him a lot. I know he cares. We've done a lot of work around this, but not enough to talk about it on the yeah. podcast. So what are some other things we do to help create that awareness in our kids? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, let's see. Well, we allude to the idea that there are a lot of components to things happening. Like mm-hmm. the food just appears in front of our kids or they get a sense that... The fresh bed clothes go on. Right, the fresh... The, like They probably don't even know that we wash the beds mm-hmm. unless we talk to them about these processes and not, mm-hmm. hey, did you uh, did you notice that I spent mm-hmm. five hours on this food? Hey, fresh sheets, uh, are you going to say thank you? Not in that way, but in right. a like storytelling really to, to to show what's happening behind the scenes what goes into this and we talk about this with mm-hmm. gratitude and gift giving and building awareness around saying thank you and all these things mm-hmm. saying gosh you know grandpa how do you think he came up with that idea to give that to you he must have been so excited and he, what store do you think he went to right. how long do you think it took him to pick it out be- building a context be- for things that happen habits don't happen unless a value is created beneath those habits. And I think it's so easy for us as parents to just be focusing on the outer habit, just trying to cue, cue, cue. Hey, you didn't do this. I used to do this all the time for you. I had that habit and now you need to have that habit. Pass Mm -hmm. the torch, you know? And what we're talking about is we need to be creating the value. And creating the value means we need to be creating the awareness around all of it. Mm -hmm. Talking about it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll be right with you. I need to go change the laundry. You're welcome to come with me if you want to help. Mm-hmm. But say what we're doing. Hey, do you want to hear what I did today? I did this and this and this, yeah. you know? Um, and I don't even think our partners necessarily know what we did and what we do. I, I find myself modeling and storytelling for them as well. Because yeah. if I don't light a candle in the house, Justin doesn't know I cleaned it. He legitimately mm-hmm. doesn't even see that things are put away, swept, mopped, cleaned, unless a candle's there to, to signify. Maybe, maybe subconsciously he's like, oh, feels good here. But he's not like, maybe. whoa, how much work did my wife put in today? Yeah, it's yeah. rough. Okay, what else do we do um, to kind of build that greater awareness and um, yeah, help and our balance. kids just, just, know, just know that people are doing work around, that people are chipping in, that, that we live in this communal space like we well, talked about, Darcy. Especially because you and I talked Talk so much, Kelty, about agency in mm-hmm. in our you know and promoting that agentic sense, that independence, that that um, resilience, that self directedness in our kids. But we also again want to raise people who take care of other people and who are aware of other people, compassionate, especially helpers. boys who yeah. are going to be getting a lot less of that focused within our culture and that community. socialization, mm-hmm. right? So that's why we're focusing on all of this right now. Not as though this is the most important thing, but as in this is one important area to be leveling out this domestic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, storytelling, right? Yeah, Did we can story. Well, we can storytell also about emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, and just say like, "Oh gosh, it feels so good when Papa asks me how I'm doing, especially mm-hmm. when he can tell that I'm a little frustrated." Mm-hmm. And we model with our partners in front of them sometimes too. Like, "I'm sorry, I was struggling a little bit earlier," and they say, "That's okay. I knew you were. Can I, do you want a hug?" And we just try to, you know, show show and tell that we all mm-hmm. take care of each other. Yeah. Not that it's a responsibility, not that it's, you know, should be scary or a negative responsibility, mm-hmm. but that it, it feels good to right. care and be cared for. I think something that I've been thinking of a lot with my partner and with my kids is not criticizing their work. When Ooh, they yeah. do participate, we want to create positive associations around all of these so things. No so nitpicking. No nitpicking, no, mm-hmm. no digging and poking, you know. Um, and I know that's what happens to me where I'm like, what about these crumbs? 
what about this? Who do you think is going to wipe this up? Mm-hmm. And I get all like, yeah, yeah, totally. But it's so easy that can really undermine their sense of confidence and their willingness to participate and engage with all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. We want to create the positive association. Totally. Um, let's see. Oh. Uh, oh, another positive association, just showing appreciation and acknowledgement, you yeah. know, when, when they're doing these things. And we try know. to do that with our partners as well. We'll talk mm-hmm. about modeling more, maybe a little bit. Um, I'll do that one really quick, but just modeling appreciation and acknowledgement with our partners. And this is a sticking point for me and mine where I say, when, when he brings food to the table, I'll say, thank you, Papa. This looks so good. And often that doesn't happen. And I end up setting the food down with like a crash. And I'm like, here you go. Because he's just not not saying anything. But yeah. we have to be building that context around it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. especially frustrated when it's me because I'm the woman bringing food. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no thank you. It's just automatically just, implied that you would yeah, be doing it. Because duh. But I don't think Justin feels that way. But no. I think that it's just he doesn't have that, that sensitive awareness to like yeah. everything I'm saying is building a context for what what is that great is the most yeah. teaching we're doing is by just living with one another people mm-hmm. um we try not to divide and conquer by gender so yeah. girls go do the the lunch work and boys go out and mow the lawn let's try and mix it up or all oh, go try and mow the lawn and have alex that's what do makes me things. so frustrated like, like, justin is so fucking handy i know like all the outdoorsy stuff it's he yeah. takes them and i'm just like and i'll be here in the house uh-huh. <laughs> just like ah. yeah so frustrating but it's pushing me to get more mm-hmm. ambitious and challenge myself and learn some new things and get outside my comfort zone literally totally yeah um and lastly uh, and there's so many things that we can do but we can't touch on all of them but i think that it's important to let our girls especially opt out and to say no mm-hmm. it is important for them to know like it's they're going to have so much exposure and and enculturation about the pressure to to prioritize others over themselves, to constantly help that communality that Darcy was talking about. And we want them to know that, no, sometimes it can just be them. They can say, I want to finish this Lego project. I don't want to set the table for dinner yet. Or I don't want to put this Lego project away. Maybe, and then we talk, maybe I'll do it after bath. Mm -hmm. But honoring that sense of that inner awareness and inner authority and that resistance and that resistance to compliance to automatic every compliance, now and then yeah. and not saying just let it all go and don't have to worry about any responsibilities but it's just you know it can seem so selfish and lazy mm-hmm. you know it we can portray it like that and i just i want to make sure that we we allow them to attune with that part of themselves that can and at times should resist others' expectations or their own responsibilities and they can feel the way that feels yeah and i think know? the last thing is to just, like Darcy said, get in touch with our partners and mm-hmm. get aware and organized yeah. so that we can really be modeling a, a true egalitarian partnership yeah. with I, our husbands. The last few days, I made a list and it's like four pages long and I'm still adding to it. And I showed it to Alex and I also broke down our hours, our work hours and our caregiving hours just during the work week. Because the weekends we tend to balance and flex, but just during the work week. And it was so interesting to see how many, we didn't, I didn't even realize I almost three times as many parenting I think, hours as I he think does. Aside like from it's the, crazy. The hour breakdown. What was interesting to me was all the minutia that you mm-hmm. do in every area of the home. Where he would have just put laundry. It's like no. Notice the laundry bag is is full. Grab a laundry bag and load it up and put it outside. Take it to Kelty's house and put it in. Rotate the loads into the dryers. Bring it home. Fold it. Put it away. 
you know, like mm-hmm. there's so many steps that go into that that I do and that I have to be managing. Or little things like refill the the napkin holder on your on mm-hmm. your kitchen table, which he's never done. Right. Or I think ta- he just thinks or, that they grow there. Yeah, or empty the empty the trash in the car, or take their water bottles. You know, refill those. Yeah. We could go on forever. But as we yeah. bring our husbands into this, you know, pool of awareness mm-hmm. and and then action, we're going to be bringing our kids into that fold too. And right. our kids, our husbands, can be storytellers for that for all of those things too. Right. Because this is a system and a culture that has harmed all of us, our our partners, us, and we don't want it to harm our kids. We do have some power here in our homes to make some change and to be raising kids that are integrated with a sense of agency and a sense of commonality. Love it. Learn more about Darcy Lockman and find details about her book, All the Rage, at DarcyLockman.com. And it's available at all of your favorite bookstores like Powell's, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. You can see what she's up to on Twitter at Darcy underscore Lockman and on Instagram at Darcy Lockman Kingsley. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts on our conversation with Darcy. So please DM, call, email, or contact us through our website, upbringing.co. And subscribe, rate, and review us because that's how folks find us. We Mm -hmm. really like that. That's how we get big guests on here too. Yeah. Makes a really big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Hang around for a very quick Ask Us Anything segment at the end of this show. And it can be anything. So keep submitting your your questions via DM. Some of them them are really funny and great. They've been amazing. Lastly, you are doing an amazing job. We are so proud of you. We're right here with you, taking steps to better understand ourselves, our kids, and one another. So thanks for being here. We're all growing up together. Till next time. Okay, a quick ask us anything. What was the question, Cal? The question was... Shit. <laughs> Let me look. It was... Um, Oh my God, I'm so sorry, everybody. (laughs) What do you think of Brene Brown's thoughts on parenting? Oh my goodness. Love all her thoughts on parenting. And I love how she talks. I can't even say it right. (laughs) On parenting. I love how she describes uh, choice theory, giving Mm -hmm. choices to kids as this like revolutionizing, revolutionary, amazing thing. Kind of blew our minds too. Do you want to walk and hold my hand or should I pick you up? Mm -hmm. Do you want to finish this meal right now or are you going to clear your plate whatever the things like giving some options showing them that we don't have to force things on them that they have agency right but that also there's a structure of secure boundaries around it and i love all the stuff she says about labels Mm -hmm. she tells a great story about her daughter who came the teacher said hey i I think i mentioned to your daughter that she was really messy because she'd been making a big mess and she said i am not messy i just made a mess as in saying don't Mm -hmm. label me Mm -hmm. as a messy person i mean she she talks about about so many things that we discuss. She just does it in her beautiful Brene storytelling fashion. Mm-hmm. And she's just incredible. I mean, her biggest thing that we've gleaned is vulnerability. And shame. And, and shame. And yeah. how using, uh, uh, connecting to our own vulnerability is allowing us to connect better to our child's vulnerability and to honor that. And how that is the path to growth, is acknowledging and honoring and welcoming that vulnerability. That's mm-hmm. where we're all growing up together. Yeah, if you haven't listened to or read The Gifts of Imperfect Parenting, we highly recommend it. Yes.